Good morning, church. Uh, I'm Scotty Satterwhite. I am in the house's gospel community with my wife, with my wife and two children. Uh, I'll be reading the scripture this morning. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is will be how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed in his words with at his words. But Jesus said to him to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It, it, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, our God will stand forever. Thank you, Scotty. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. There is a connect card under your chair and a pen. If you would take a minute and fill that out, we'd love an opportunity to connect with you, see how we could serve you as the body, get you plugged into the life of Redeemer Church. Also, uh, if you need a Bible, uh, you can raise your hand. Zach will bring you one. Um, and if you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. So um, Zach's back there with Bibles. If you need one, you can get yourself one or he can bring you one. Um, so let me start with this. How many of you growing up remember the question, getting asked this or thinking about what do you want to be when you grow up? How many of you have ever asked your kids that question? What do you want to be when you grow up? My kids, I've got four of them, they've gone all over the place with this question. When Levi was four or five, he came to us and he said, hey, I want to be a cooker guy. And then Maya recently told us she wanted to work at Whataburger, so I'm like, chase those dreams, babies. Um, my nephew, at one point in his life, he was like, I want to be a pastor and a marine biologist. So we went to SeaWorld every year and prayed for those people. Um, 
Anyways, I've known for a long time that I was going to do some kind of vocational ministry, be a pastor or, or whatever. Um, but prior to that, I wanted to play baseball for a living, but I lacked a couple things. Uh, talent and drive, uh, for, to name a couple. So I was unable to accomplish that goal. But I think if we'd go around the room, we'd all be able to say, I used to want to be a cop or a firefighter or a teacher or a professional this or that. And that's just part of being a person in America, right? We are generally a career-minded culture, and a lot of us view our personhood through the lens of our work. For example, when you meet another adult, you may introduce yourself, hey, I'm Tanner, and then you immediately follow up that brief introduction with, now, what do you do for a living? And that's not a bad thing necessarily, you know, you're trying to get to know somebody, but I do want to submit to you something this morning. Based on our text, we are so much more than our work. Our identities, especially as believers in Jesus, are much deeper than what we do. There's also something very human in us in trying to seek some answers to some deep and meaningful questions in life. Who am I? Why do I even exist? What is my purpose in life and what happens to me when I die? Like those are all really good, valuable questions, and the scriptures provide some answers to these questions throughout the Bible. And today I want to tell you that based on this text, that you do in fact matter. You are called into a relationship with Jesus because of his love for you. You get to be a child of God. If your faith is in Christ, you are an adopted son or daughter of Jesus. For his glory, for his praise, for his honor, and for your good. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are assured of a hope and we are assured of a future. And it is for your good. And I hope to share with you why this morning. So I'd like to just dive into this text and talk about a few things this morning together. So let's pray. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray. Um, and we will just jump in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, show us our need for you. Show us our need for you above all things. Lord, may we just take some inventory of our life this morning and see areas where we are not following you fully and completely in trust and devotion and dependency on you, Jesus. Lord, I pray, down that, you, pray that you would tear down walls this morning, that you would bring our idolatry to light this morning. Lord, I pray that this text would lead us to faith and repentance. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he, that he is Jesus, and as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So for context, we've seen the last couple of weeks that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem to the place where he will be arrested and then ultimately crucified. Jesus knows full well what is about to happen to him, and he's headed there anyways. 
And as we've seen in, as we'll see in next week's text, uh, as far as the disciples are concerned, they're just going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So as you open your Bibles at home, you should open your Bibles at home. Um, I want you to keep in mind the flow of Scripture. It isn't broken up in the way to like a children's book is broken up. Like here's a story, here's a story, here's a story. Um, the stories about Jesus are building on one another. The books of the Bible build on one theme, generally. They tell a big story that is ultimately a part of the grand narrative of Scripture where God creates, man sins, Jesus comes to earth and lives a perfect sinless life, and then dies and is raised for the redemption of sins. And ultimately, God will return to restore creation back to its original purpose. And we're living now in the period called the church age between the coming of Jesus at his birth and the return of Jesus to fully restore the kingdom of God with a new heaven and a new earth. So I'll tell you all of that just to tell you that our text today is a continuation of the last two weeks text. Jesus has dealt with marriage, specifically God's plan for marriage and a discussion about divorce. And last week we saw him talking about family and who gets to be a part of the kingdom of God. And today we're going to see Jesus talking about possessions. All of these things that Jesus is talking about, all of his activity here, is pointing towards God's kingdom and God's redemptive work. And so he's just finished teaching about receiving the kingdom of God and childlike dependency Jesus and his disciples get up from the place where they were in order to continue on towards Jerusalem. And just then a man, Matthew calls him a young man, and Luke calls him a ruler, probably meaning he's a person with some status in the synagogue, making him influential in Jewish culture. So we also know that later in our text that this guy is wealthy, so he is commonly referred to as the rich young ruler. So... This rich young ruler, he runs up to Jesus, and he has an important question to ask him. And he kneels down before Jesus. Not only does this guy know Jesus is a person who can answer his questions, but he also approaches him with an extreme amount of humility. Consider this. He is a ruler this ruler does not kneel before many people very often because of his status in society. But he knows that Jesus is someone who is worthy of respect and honor, so he kneels down before him. And not only does he kneel before Jesus, he calls him good teacher. This term good was generally only reserved for God. If this term was attributed to another person like good Chad... Um, that means that Chad's goodness is derived from God, that Chad gets his goodness based on his relationship to God. And it was really rare that someone would be like, hey, good Chad. Um, no one ever really used the word good and attributed it to somebody else. It was always attributed to God most often. But here's this guy running up, kneeling before Jesus, good teacher. And he asked Jesus the most important question in life. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is a level of sincerity in his question. 
at least on the surface, it seems like this guy is approaching Jesus, that he's like in this emotionally vulnerable state, willing to do whatever it took to make sure that his soul and his salvation were secure. By my estimation, he's looking for one of two things. He's either looking for an attaboy from Jesus, like good game, or peace in his heart that he has done enough so he could just go on about his life without much thought to anything else. I mean, if he got the answer he was wanting from Jesus, then for the rest of his life, he could basically just exist and do whatever he wanted, right? I think he's asking the question all of us ask at some level. Jesus, what else? Jesus, tell me what to do and I'll do it. God, let me show you all of my good deeds that I've done so you'll love me. God, I'm a good person. Look at all of this. And we try to relate to God in a transactional way. God, I'll do this stuff and then you'll love me. Man, but that's not the heart of God. That's not at all the heart of God, as we'll see in this text. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. That means lie. Don't lie. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. So first of all, Jesus says, Hey, man. Your standard of goodness needs to be raised. Meaning this, at present, this guy has no clue that Jesus is God. This will become evident as the story progresses. This guy has no concept that Jesus is is God, is the Messiah, is the Christ. Jesus is saying that your concept of good is inadequate if you lightly and flippantly use this word good. Consider what is truly good. Think of God alone who is supremely good and the only good, and then be obedient to him because of his goodness. One commentator says it like this, Christ wants this young man to realize this, without knowing to whom you are speaking, don't ascribe to me that which pertains alone to God. This man, in calling Jesus good, is calling Jesus God. And in Jesus' response, he's asking this man to consider something. Young man, is this really what you mean? And if so, get ready. I'll explain in a minute. Jesus then goes from asking him this question to referring back to some of the Ten Commandments. He says, don't murder, don't steal, etc., The Old Testament laws that Jesus presented serve as a guide for us for how we ought to function. They exist to show us the standard of goodness and the standard of holiness for us and how to live, right? Jesus is affirming the Old Testament, but what we also see in Romans is that because of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, because of this law, including but not limited to the Ten Commandments, That is where we become aware of our own sinfulness. We can follow some things, but we will not keep it all perfectly. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 actually flips this understanding of rule following and law following completely on its head. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. Check. Oh wait, but if you've hated somebody in your heart, 
You have already committed murder against them. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you've ever lusted, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And here he's just calling this man to consider this this Old Testament law. And as a good Jewish man, this guy would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm following these rules. Because look at his response. Verse 20, it says, And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. You can almost sense a swelling of pride in this young man, like, boom, I did it. Fist pump. Jesus, I'm good. Yes. See, a lot of us approach God like this. We try to walk through life making sure our good deeds, our moral righteous living, at the end of our lives, we want the good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff. And we look at God as some cosmic scale watcher, like good deed, good deed, bad deed. And then like, we just want the good side to outweigh the bad. And guess what else? Some of you are so sincere in that thought process. Whether you'd actively say it or not, A lot of us function like this, where we're trying to do everything right. But when you really understand the depths of your sin, you realize that even in your best moments, you are still sinful. And even your motives at the most sincere level are not pure. When you function like this, you are not functioning out of love. When you function like this, you are not functioning out of service and delightful obedience to Jesus. You are functioning out of trying to earn something for yourself. And that's not rooted in love. That's not rooted in love for God. That's rooted in worship of self. That's why a lot of times when you try to function like this, you are constantly worried if you've done enough, if you're good enough, because at your core, in your private moments, your thought life is condemning you. We all mess up, right? We all carry fear and guilt and shame around. We need something more. This man in our text may be prideful, yes, but he also just think he may be crushing it in life. In morality, just following the law, being a good rule follower. And apart from the saving work of Jesus on the cross to you, your good deeds will never be enough to pay for your sin debt. Good works do not save you. You are justified. You are made right by Christ's work to you and nothing else. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he, the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looks at this man in deep compassion. The text says that Jesus loved this man. Verse 21 is said to be one of the most tender verses in all of Scripture. Jesus has love for this guy who is far from him. And in his response to the man's question, Jesus cuts right to the heart of this man. Jesus says, sell everything. 
The first, Jesus is like implicitly referring back to the Ten Commandments. The first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't have idols, says God. An idol is something, and it could literally be anything. A person, a job, status, money, sex, a desire for a husband and wife, anything. And making it, you take something and you make it the most important thing in your life. Idols, generally speaking, are gifts from God that we make our God, our ruler, our master. The gifts become our God. And Jesus is confronting this man in his idolatry. Now, just real quick, I just want to be really careful in how we unpack this text from here forward. Um... The command that Jesus is giving this man to sell everything is a general command or a specific command for this one, not a general command for everyone. Jesus isn't telling all of you, go sell everything you have in order to get eternal life. That's not the point. But what we do see in this man is that his wealth, his possessions have become his God. This man isn't sinful because he has stuff. However, because of his great wealth, his possessions are ruling him and have poisoned his soul. We see this in his response in verse 21, um, verse 22. If verse 21 is one of the most tender and affectionate verses in all of Scripture, verse 22 has got to be one of the most tragic. This man, the text says, went away sorrowful. The original language uses the word like crestfallen, like happy to sad in an instant. His whole face changed, and he turned around, and he left. This man's gold would remain his God. James Edward says that a person who is morally good, who does indeed endear himself to Jesus, can still be an idolater. Jesus looks at this man and says, God must be God of your entire life. He is either everything to you, Or he is nothing to you. There is no in-between. And don't miss one crucial element of the story. Jesus says, sell everything you have. Then come follow me. Jesus offers himself as a substitute for this man's possessions. Give it all up and I will give you life. In me is found life and life eternal. Come to me, says Jesus. I will give you everything you need. Jesus invites this man to be a disciple. The call to discipleship is radical and requires self-sacrifice. That is why when Jesus says to deny yourself, take up the cross and follow him, he is calling you to die. It's one of the huge ironies in scripture that through death, There is life. Through the death of Jesus, life everlasting is possible. Through the dying of our wants, our values, our desires, those things that don't honor God, giving those things to Jesus leads to fulfillment in Jesus. And it leads to mission with Jesus. So while the call on this man to sell everything he owns and follow Jesus is specific to this man, 
The principle is that Jesus calls us to get rid of the things in our life that A, don't honor him, and B, negatively impact our worship of him. When Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's saying, are you saying that I'm God? If so, then you need to follow me. You need to obey me. You need to worship me. And let me give you everything that is due you as a son or a daughter of me. If you would follow Jesus, you must be willing to let go of anything and everything to come to him in childlike faith. To come to him with nothing. And he'll give you everything. I heard a clip from a Matt Chandler sermon this week where he's talking about the do's and the do-nots of the Bible. He said something like this. When Jesus says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, he is not saying these things to take things away from you. Rather, he's saying do or do not in love in order to give you something better. When Jesus says, hey, money, like this, I have something better for you. Hey, sex, relationships, like this, because I have something better for you. God's design for you is to thrive. And because he is all-knowing and because he is all-powerful and he has given us his word to reveal to us the way to life everlasting, there's life in the future for us. But also, we have fulfillment in Jesus now. Man, when we minimize sin... It just has some devastating consequences. Look just at our view of sex culturally. Generations of not just men, but families and just individual people have been devastated by the effects of porn. And we trade sex like a commodity and people are hurt and generations of kids feel the pains of the brokenness. Or we could look at anything like money and trying to fulfill ourselves and medicate with with things and we're never satisfied and we're always feeling inadequate and insufficient when we compare ourselves to others or relationships that we may or may not need to be in in the first place that leave us feeling insecure and hurt and on and on and on we could go and here's Jesus telling us to lay down our idols at the foot of the cross to believe that he is, in fact, better. To follow him in dependence and in obedience. And yet, for a lot of us, when Jesus makes a bold claim on our lives to give up stuff, to give it up, whatever it is, we oftentimes look at him and we say, Jesus, you can have this part of my life. Jesus, you can have every part of my life, but not this over here. I'm going to hold on to this. And Jesus says, hey, follow me. And we become sorrowful because at some level, we like our idols. But true hope and true fulfillment is only found in Jesus. And I want to take this idea a little further in a minute, but I just I want to finish walking through this text first. Um, Mark 10, 23, Jesus looked around after the guy had left. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
This is a really bold statement from Jesus, especially if you consider your Western existence, right? Here's a caution for you. It's a friendly pastoral caution. It's easy to look at a story like this and become a classist, like thumbing your nose towards those rich snobs over there and then using the Bible to do it. It's easy to say, yeah, rich people won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's a lot more difficult to say, look at me. Look at me making this amount of money, living in relative comfort with my car and my running water at home, both hot and cold, coming out of multiple taps in various places, in three bathrooms in my house, and clean water to drink, and food on my table, in my fridge that keeps it fresh for me for several days. It's difficult for me to inherit the kingdom of God. I'm rich. We're rich. If you're in this room, you are probably wealthy by the world standards. By the world standards, simply by virtue of living in this country, we are wealthy. We have so much pulling at our attention, grabbing at our affections, pulling us away from God. And Jesus says, man, for those of you who have... It's difficult. And it's difficult because it's difficult to admit our neediness before God. Verse 24, love the disciples. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? The disciples were like, Whoa, Jesus, this is crazy. Who can be saved? If it's that hard, Jesus, it would seem like it's impossible to make it into heaven. And Jesus affirms this in some tender love and affection. He calls them children. With the tenderness of a perfect father, he says, Rest easy, kiddos. It's easy for a giant camel to go through a tiny eye of a needle than it is to enter the, the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples are like, Jesus, that's impossible. If that's really the case, who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus just keeps on going. You can't do it on your own. You need God. In your own power, by your own merit, by your own good deeds, you will always be lacking. But with God, it's possible. Because of the cross of Jesus, it is possible. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit to call you to faith, it is possible. God sent his son to redeem you from your sin in order to restore you back to God the Father who loves you enough to sacrifice himself for you. And because of that, it is possible. What must you do to inherit eternal life? There is nothing you can do apart from faith in Jesus. There is no do. It is done. Jesus has made it possible for you to be reconciled to God. Jesus has paid your debt. And listen, because of your sin, your debt was steep. My debt was steep. And Jesus, 
our own rich young ruler, sold all of his possessions, stepped out of the richness of heaven, all of that belonging to him, and modeling obedience and submission to God the Father, followed God, paid for you, and paid for me. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? You must believe in Jesus. You must believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You must confess him to be the Christ, the Holy One of God. You must repent of your sins, and you must follow God with the totality of your life. It is only possible through the blood of Jesus to inherit eternal life. Look at Peter's response, and look at Jesus' response to Peter. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter is always the spokesman for, for this group. I love that guy. I relate a lot to him. Just sometimes it's probably better to not say anything. I haven't learned that lesson yet. But anyways, Peter's like, Jesus, look, we're doing it. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. And Jesus also cautions them. It's going to get hard. You will receive me with persecutions. Jesus is going to make demands on your lives, Christians. Jesus is going to ask things of you that are not easy. Jesus may call you to sell everything. Jesus says some of you will have to leave your family for my sake. Some of you will have to leave the comfort and security of your homes or your jobs for my sake. But you will receive even more now and in the age to come. Jesus says when you're called to forsake family and lands, you get a spiritual family now, the church, and in the future, the kingdom of God as an adopted son or daughter. You are called to love and serve and follow Jesus in whatever arena he calls you to. Whether that be in Odessa, Texas, or Odessa, Ukraine, or you have to set aside some relationships that aren't honoring to God, you will receive it back a hundredfold because Jesus has something better for you. This is a call to serve, and it's a call to follow in trust and obedience. The challenge then is to believe that this is true. And if it's true, it ought to move you to action. It moves us to the repentance of sin, and it moves us to the laying down of our idols, and it moves us to go. So back to idolatry for a second. Here's the thing about idols. They always disappoint you. If your hope is in anything other than God, if you place your hope in your country or your church or your political party or your bank account or your career or your relationship, you will always be disappointed. What happens when 
your presidential candidate doesn't get elected or you lose your job or that dude that you're trying to date stops returning your calls or your relationship, your marriage, your dating fails or you're hurt by the church and you've placed all your hope in that. You will find yourself wanting You will find yourself lacking. And if your hope is in temporal things, then your hope is temporary. If you are constantly looking for the next thing, the next career, or counting down the days when you can get out of Odessa, or whatever it is, don't look pious at me. I know some of you are doing that, counting down your time in Odessa. If you're constantly looking for the next thing and it never comes... Or you're never truly satisfied and content in Jesus, you will always feel empty and unsatisfied and discontent. You will get to a new place. You will get a new job, a new relationship, a new spouse, a new house, a new car, and you will still be anxious and you will still be discontent because you were never truly content in Jesus to begin with. If you do not believe me, if you disagree with me, I just tell you to look at where your money goes. Or look where you're spending all of your free time. On the other hand, Jesus invites you into his rest. Jesus invites you into his family. And in that, there is eternal life. And I cannot say this enough. When Jesus calls this man to sell everything and follow him, Jesus is inviting him into life. Jesus is substituting himself for this man's possessions. This man may have to sell all of his stuff in order to follow Jesus, but he gets Jesus. And Jesus is offering you the same thing. Jesus looks at us in love in our sinful state and says, follow me. Jesus offers himself as our substitute in death by becoming death for us. By dying the death that was reserved for us and dying on a cross. But praise be to God, man, Jesus does not stay dead. He rose, defeating sin and death once and for all for those who would believe. For all of those whose faith is in Jesus. Through the blood of the cross, there is grace for our failures and grace for our sins. We can turn to him, leaving the things behind that don't honor Jesus, and we get to follow him. Jesus is calling you to life, and Jesus is calling you into joy. It may not look, joy may not look like worldly happiness, but he is calling you to complete and utter joy. There is joy when you surrender yourselves to Jesus. There is joy when you realize we don't have to work for God's love and try to earn his favor because it's already been earned for us through Jesus. Jesus gives us joy through the reading of his word. When we meditate on it, he reveals his promises to us. He gives us joy by inviting us into his family, the church, within the context of the local church. That's where we grow in discipleship. That's where we grow in relationship with Jesus, with other believers, and where we grow in Christ and where we grow in joy. Jesus is calling us to delight in him. So if you aren't currently delighting in Jesus, here's two questions to consider and we'll be done. What stirs your affections for Christ? Reading the Bible, 
listening to music that causes us to consider Jesus, being around other believers. Man, if you're not delighting in Jesus, do that stuff. The other question I have is this. If you're not delighting in Jesus, is Jesus a priority in your life? Sometimes, sometimes we allow ourselves to get clouded with every single other thing. And we look up and we have not spent any time in the word, any time in prayer, any time in fellowship with God, any time in fellowship with other believers. And I just ask you to consider that this morning as well. If you're not delighting in Jesus, how are you spending your time? Because again, Jesus in his call, he's not calling you to follow the rules, but to follow him. And there's life for you there. Listen, if you get to the end of your life and you think you've done enough to earn salvation from God and you pat yourself on the back like I did it, I kept all these things from my youth, Jesus. Friends and loved ones, let me just tell you this. You are deceived. You may not actively think that you're doing enough or trying to earn, but do you live your life that way? Salvation is not earned. It is given. And that is good news. That is God's goodness to you because even in your best moments, you are still a needy sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. And grace and forgiveness was so richly lavished on you through the cross of Christ and through his resurrection and now by the Holy Spirit who indwells you as a believer. God says, follow me with everything you have. And in that there is life and there are blessings now and forevermore. So church, I just close by asking you this. Are you willing to follow Jesus like this? Let's pray.